0: Good to see you tonight. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you were probably expecting Aaron to be speaking tonight, and uh, he traded places with me. He's out of town. Uh, so you're stuck with me again. Uh, seems like I've been uh, preaching a lot lately, and I don't mind that, but uh, I'm sure y'all are ready to hear somebody else talk, but uh, that song that Monty just led, the end of that song, uh, sort of gives this sentiment that we're going to read about tonight in John 20, that idea of my Lord and my God. Uh, those are very important words. And, and most of you probably recognize that is from Thomas's confession that he makes upon recognizing the, the resurrected Savior. And it's interesting because that's the first time that we see someone else uh, speak of the deity of Jesus. Um, We see Peter's confession of him being the son of God, but to say the words, my God, are a very powerful uh, truth that we need to let sink in. Uh, As we're looking at this, the proof that the apostles and the disciples needed to radically transform their lives was a resurrected Savior. You might be thinking, well, well they followed Jesus for three years or more than three years. That's true. But they weren't radically transformed until after the resurrection. Uh, These men, when Jesus, we read about in some of the previous chapters, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. We saw that. They were in fear for their lives. But something changed in them when they saw the resurrected Savior. They went out and they boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. And when men would threaten their lives, they would say, we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. What emboldened them to do that? It was realizing that Jesus really was the life. In him was life. And they didn't fear death. And I want you to know that Jesus doesn't want us to fear death. And the truth is, without the resurrection, this is all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 17, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men the most pitiable. What he's saying here is this. If Jesus didn't ra- isn't risen from the dead, what we're doing is pointless. It's useless. What you believe is completely empty and vain. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, that means we don't have our sin. We're not in our sin. That means those that have passed on, they will rise again. But if in this life, if the only advantage to believing in Jesus is what we experience in this life, friends, we ought to be pitied. Because you know what the rest of the world is doing? Experiencing as much pleasure as they can before they die. But what are we doing? We're striving to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, as Brother Nathan talked about recently, to live a life that denies our flesh of some of the pleasures that the world offers. And if there's no resurrection, that is completely counterintuitive. It makes no sense. And so the resurrection is, if you will, the linchpin of Christianity. It proves that Jesus is who he said he was. So starting out in John chapter 20, we're going to be moving in and out of some of the other Gospels tonight. We're not going to do that a great deal, and it would be really great if we could take all four of the Gospels and line them up and try to chrono, uh, try to make a chronology of all those things. We just simply don't have time to do that. Uh, if you would like to see something like that, I want to recommend a book to you if you don't have this. Uh, Brother J.W. McGarvey, who's passed on now, wrote a lot of different books. One of the My favorite of his works is called The Fourfold Gospel. And what he does in that fourfold gospel is he takes all the events that synchronize from the four gospels and he writes them all together and he'll put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together in one paragraph. So you get every detail. Really neat. Uh, If you can find one of those or download it on Kindle, I'd recommend that. We just don't have time to do that tonight. But we're going to go in and out of some of the gospels to pick up details that will help us in understanding John chapter 20. So John chapter 20 verse 1 it says now the first day of the week Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So this is something interesting about John's gospel. Matthew and Luke especially, and and Mark as well, they mention that there are several women who go to the tomb, but John only focuses on Mary Magdalene. He doesn't ever mention any of these other women. And I think he does that, he emphasizes her for a reason. It's not that he didn't know that they were there, didn't believe they were there, but again, these gospel writers, they wrote what was significant to them and from their perspective as the Holy Spirit directed them. And so, John had a different purpose for his letter, and one of the things that we're going to see here is that Mary Magdalene had a part to play in the resurrection of Jesus specifically. So we read about Mary Magdalene here, and it says she went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now if you remember from our other writings uh, that we've read, we saw like in Luke where the women who had come from Galilee that had followed after Jesus, it says, And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. This is what Mary is going there to the tomb to do. They had spent their time preparing a way to go basically embalm the body. It wasn't like what we have today, but they would go and they would intertwine spices within the wrappings. Uh, essentially what they did was they swaddled someone. If if We all know what that means, to swaddle something. They, they would swaddle a person in linen cloth, and they would go put these spices in there. So that's what she's going there to do. And, and if we read Luke 24, we... Actually realized that there were more than just her there. so uh, this is Luke's account of what we just read in John. So John just deals with Mary Magdalene, and notice they saw that she saw the stone was taken away. Well, Luke adds more details to that when he says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So there were other people with Mary Magdalene <clears throat> That'll become a little more significant later. Okay, so verse 2. It's, it's, again, John is just dealing with Mary. And it says after that she came to the tomb and saw the stone was rolled away, then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. What's the first thing she does when she sees the stone rolled away? She goes to tell Simon Peter... And John, that's, that's who this other disciple is. That John often refers to himself as the disciple whom the Lord loved. And he reveals himself at the end of the book that that's, that's who he's talking about. The one that's testifying and writing this book. And so Peter and John now have been told by Mary. What did, what did she tell them? Did she say, come look, the Lord is risen. He's alive from the dead. No. She says somebody stole his body. That's what they think. Somebody came and took Jesus and I don't know where they put him. Luke 24, verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with him. So again, several women who told these things to the apostles. So again, John is just dealing with the fact that Mary goes back and tells this to the apostles initially. And so here we have that there were other women with them, And their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. So Mary runs and she says, she says, somebody took the body of Jesus. We don't know where he's at. And they're going, really? Come on now. That didn't happen. But Peter, you see that? It seemed to them as idle tells, but Peter. Okay, the rest of them are going, that didn't happen. Peter's going, I'm going to go look. So it says, Peter arose and he ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. What happened when Peter went to the tomb and looked in the tomb? Did he think the Lord's alive? Did he go looking for the Lord? What did he do? He marveled what had happened. What had happened. Now John, when we get to John's account of this, John gives us another detail of this that Luke doesn't add. And that is that John was with Peter when Peter runs to the tomb. So again, we're getting a full picture of what's going on here. And so it says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed." Now, this is so indicative of John and Peter. I mean, it just really is, is characteristic of these two men. They were very close to Jesus. They hear this report that the body's missing, and those two men, they have a foot race to the tomb, and John wins. And and, it's, and everybody, I guess all scholars believe that John was one of the younger the of disciples. He outlived most of them. Uh, but anyway, John beats him to the tomb. But see, John runs to the tomb, and he stops, and he looks in, and Peter goes right by him. That's just so Peter, right? He's not going to stop and look at the door. I'm going in. I'm going in the tomb. And so Peter goes in the tomb and he sees the linens that Jesus' body was wrapped. And then he sees the piece that was wrapped around his head and it's folded up and sitting over by itself. Now, I'll tell you, if you're on social media you're online, you're going to see all kinds of different stories about this handkerchief being folded and what that symbolizes. I don't know that any of that's true. What I do know is this. That would have definitely grabbed his attention. Somebody didn't just come in here and unwrap Jesus and take him out. Somebody carefully placed this handkerchief there. Somebody was careful about this and is trying to send me a message. I figure it's what he's thinking there. But Peter goes in the tomb. The other disciple who came to the tomb first, then he goes in. That's John. And what does it say? And he saw and believed. Now, here's where some conjecture starts. And, and, and it's, it's on that he believed part. Because what, what does it mean that John believed? Does it mean that he believed what Mary told them? Or does it mean that he believed that Jesus was arisen from the dead? Well, the next verse says this. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then that disciple went away. Then the disciples rather went away again again. To their own homes. So you could take that however you want, but here's what it's saying. They did not know, they didn't expect that Jesus was going to rise again. Even though you read through the gospel, you go, How do they not know that? He told them over and over and over that I'm gonna rise from the dead, the sign of of Jonas, all these things Jesus said, I'm gonna rise from the dead. But they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And it's understandable that they didn't get it. And I want you to think about something. After the agony that Jesus went through, would you believe that that body would live again? I mean, Lazarus was sick. He died of a sickness. And and they'd seen Jesus resurrect people, but they tortured Jesus. They stabbed him with a spear in his heart. Would it be hard to believe? Yeah. Even all the things that they'd seen, it was hard to believe that Jesus would rise again. And so what do they do? They go to their own homes. Now, when it says they went to their own homes, I don't believe it means they went back to Galilee. It's their dwellings. It's where they're staying. They're in Judea. And so at this point, they're in Judea. Now, we're getting back to Mary now. So you get the picture. Mary goes to the tomb. She sees it. She runs. She tells Simon, Peter, and she tells John. They run to the tomb. And then we find out that while all this is going on with Peter and John, guess who's at the tomb? It's Mary. Mary. And she's standing outside the tomb, by the tomb, and she's weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Again, this is another one of those things where people say, well, you know, this represents the the two cherubim that were on the... The Ark of the Covenant, and now they're showing this is the new mercy seat at the tomb of Jesus. I, I, again, I don't know that all that stuff's true, but there's a reason why there's two angels sitting there. I, and, and they're at the foot and the head of Jesus. And, and Mary walks in and she sees these angels. And what's she doing? She's moaning, weeping. She's grieving over the loss of the Lord. I, I just want you to understand, this woman is not filled with hope right now. She's very much upset. These angels say to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, "'Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him.'" What does she think? Jesus is dead somewhere. Somewhere he's dead, and somebody stole him, and I just want to take care of him. I want to come do what I came to do. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping? (laughs) Who are you seeking?' She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. So you might think, well, why didn't she recognize him? Well, there's two possibilities. One possibility is just like at Emmaus when Jesus was walking with the two disciples, that their eyes were restrain from them that maybe she couldn't recognize him maybe he didn't want her to recognize him I think there's something else in the text though that's very plausible and that is that she just didn't really look to see who it was and so notice that it says that she turned twice so let's look at it in verse 14 again. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. But again, they had this conversation. Then it says, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said, well, if she's already turned and she's looking at him, she's not going to turn again. And do... So, so most likely what happens, she's talking to these angels and here Jesus walks in behind her. She recognizes someone's in there. She turns around and looks, but she's weeping, she's crying, she's grieving You know, not very common to sit there and make eye contact with somebody. He says the same thing. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And it says she thought he was the gardener. And she said, if you took him somewhere, just tell me. Just tell me and I'll take him. And he says, Mary. And I don't know if she recognized his voice. But she immediately turns around and says to him, Rabboni. What a change. This just happened to this woman. As she in her grief runs and she's confused and she's uncertain about what's happening and she's talking to the other people and they don't even believe what she says. They don't, they don't care. You know, all these emotions she must be experiencing and all of a sudden, there he is. And he's alive. What would you do? What would you do? I'll tell you what, we saw Mary's character on Sunday, didn't we? Where was she always at? At the feet of Jesus worshiping him. You know what? That's where she wants to be Now. You know what he said to her? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Now, I want to talk about this statement right here uh, because this has brought about a lot of different theories. And one of those theories is that there's been multiple ascensions. And so, that, and so what essentially they're saying is, well, later Jesus told people to touch him before the ascension in Acts 1, so maybe there was multiple ascensions, and, and no, no one was allowed to touch him until he had ascended initially. Well, I, I think that that is a plausible thing to conclude from this if we don't take into account other things. So first of all, usually that's taken because of the word cling, which is translated touch in the King James. So it's almost like Jesus says, hey, don't touch me. I, like like you, you can't touch me until I send to the Father. But Think about who this is. This is Mary. And what is she going to want to do? She's going to cling to Jesus, to stay with Jesus. So let's look at another couple of things that will give us more details about this. Did anybody else touch Jesus? Did anybody else touch him? Did anybody else touch him around the time that he told Mary this? Well, let's look in Matthew 28. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. This is before his encounter with Mary. And it says, And as they went to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Did they touch him? They did. They touched him. So it wasn't about nobody can touch me until I sin. I think that there's something else at play here. Mark 16 and verse 9 it says, Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. As they mourned and wept. I want you to again get the picture of the disciples. Are they sitting in a room waiting to hear news of Jesus' resurrection? No, they're grieving. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Let me ask you a question. Who was the first person to testify that Jesus was alive? It was Mary Magdalene. That was her job. You know what Jesus was telling her? Mary, I know you want to stay with me right now. I know you want to cling to me, but I got something for you to do. I want you to go and I want you to tell my disciples this. I want you to go testify. To them, that I am going to ascend. I'm going to ascend to the Father. And so, what does she do? She goes and she tells them. And what happens? She comes and tells the disciples she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. You know what? They didn't believe her. They didn't believe her. It was a woman that first saw Jesus, and it was a woman that first told the apostles, He's alive. She was the first to testify. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut. So this is several hours later. And I want you to notice there's been two different group. Well, one person, then a group of two people who have all told the apostles that Jesus is alive. That being Mary Magdalene and also the two disciples, Clopas and whoever the other disciple was that was walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They all told the apostles, the disciples, that Jesus was alive. And now it's hours later, it's in the evening, and being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled. Now listen, for fear of the Jews, they are locked inside of a house together, scared because the Jews just killed Jesus. And they probably think we're next. And the door's closed and Jesus appears. Would that get your attention? He didn't open the door and come in. He just appears in the house with the door being closed and stood right in the middle of them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? You know, if you just read John's account here, you get the idea that all Jesus had to do was say, Guys, it's me. Look at my hands and my feet. And they were like, It's the Lord. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. We're going to come back to that when we talk about Thomas here in a few moments. But hold on to that. John chapter 20 and verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is a very challenging passage. And so some have said, well, Thomas, he, he wasn't there. We're going to read about that in a minute. He wasn't there, so he didn't get the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't believe this is the moment when they received the Spirit that what was happening here was symbolic. And so Jesus makes this statement, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Well, how do we know that Jesus sent, uh, when was it that Jesus was rather sent on his mission? Was it when he received the Holy Spirit? Right there at his baptism, it says after that he was filled with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit out to be tempted to the devil. That was immediately after his baptism. What happened then? God declared, this is my son. Now Jesus is saying, as God has sent me, as the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. And he's designating them. He breathes on them symbolically. Why? What is the job of the Spirit? What have we been reading about in John 14, 15, and 16? What is the Spirit's job? It's going to inspire them. It's going to remind them. It's going to equip them. It's going to show them things to come it's going to guide them into all truth it's all about what's being revealed here and so what's happening here jesus symbolically is breathing on them to show what's going to come and then he says this if you forgive the sins of any they're forgiven them if you retain the sins of any they're retained do you think jesus is passing on the judgment and authority to the apostles to go out and say your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven i don't believe that's what he's saying at all what was their job to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about forgiveness of sins. That's the job that they did. They laid the foundation of forgiveness of sins. They went out and they told people, this is what you must do to be saved. Now there's another area of this that we can look at and and it's related to Matthew 18 with the idea of church discipline. We see that this same concept taught there that, that Jesus said, look, if these church situations happen, these discipline situations happen, He says, and you make a choice to retain someone's sins, to bind them or loose them. He says, I'm right there in the midst of you. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. Which is not about an assembly of the church. It was about church discipline and him agreeing on those matters that they were agreeing on. They were given authority to do this. But they weren't walking around going, your sins are forgiven, your sins are held. That's not what he's talking about. He's passing on responsibility and authority because they're about to take over the work that he was doing. We read about that earlier in our study of John. You remember when Brother Justin talked to us about that? That, that Jesus said, greater works will these do than I did. Well, they didn't do greater work than the cross did. They in scope. They did greater work. They laid the foundation. They preached the gospel. More souls were brought in at that point. And so they had a great job. And this was the designation. And Thomas missed out on this. He missed out on this, but Thomas did not miss out on the gift of the Spirit. That did not come until Acts 2. Till Acts two. So let's pick up Thomas. Thomas called the twin. Uh, in the King James, it's Didymus, which is just the Greek word for twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This statement right here is why he has gained the nickname Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. A very unfair name to give this man. He said, Well, I don't know why he was doubting. Was he? Was he more doubting than the other disciples? You know, I want you to notice first off that Thomas said this to who? To the Lord? No, to the other disciples. And we're going to pick up on that in a minute. He didn't say that in the presence, the physical presence of Jesus. He said that to the disciples when they told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said, look, I'm not going to believe that until I see it. I'm not going to believe that. Well, I guess he just wasn't as believing and trusting as they were. Well, let's go read about them. Because we read earlier that once Jesus showed him his hands and his feet, it says they were glad, Right? But we got other Gospels. And this is what Luke says. Luke 24, 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. We just read that in John. But here's the added details. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. They didn't rejoice. when that's... Jesus shows up in the room. They think they're seeing a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now listen. Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You say, well, that doesn't prove anything. Well, let's keep reading. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still did not believe, they still did not believe. Why? It was too good to be true. You see that? They didn't believe for joy. That may sound confusing. They didn't believe for joy. That's right. It was too good to believe. When they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Do you have any food here? Why did you ask if they had food here? Because he's trying to convince them that he's actually there and he's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's a person. Have you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and ate in their presence. You know what they wanted before they would believe? Evidence. You know what they had to see? They had to see this. They had to see this, and he even had to eat food in their presence so they'd know he was actually flesh and bone. They wanted the same evidence that Thomas did. So why does he get the bad rap? Because of what Jesus said to him. And understand, it's Jesus is not saying, Thomas, you're the most faithless of all my disciples. That's not what he's saying to Thomas. But let's look and see what he says to Thomas. And after eight days. Okay, so Jesus shows up in the middle of the disciples in this room where they're all, this house where they're all locked in. A week has passed. He comes back on the first day of the week and he shows up again. And it says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in their midst and said, peace to you, exactly like he had done a week ago. Then he said to Thomas, reach hither, or reach your finger here. And look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Why was it that Thomas responded this way? We didn't see the other disciples respond that way. What does he think? Not just my Lord, but my Lord and my God. Why, why go there? Well, number one, Jesus just appeared. <laughs> he just appeared in the room. Uh, number two, he saw the evidence of the wounds. And he knew without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is alive. He's been resurrected from the dead. It's not a trick. He's really here. But thirdly, Thomas just recognized Jesus' omniscience. That is, his ability to see and know all things. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas was expressing what he expressed to the disciples by saying, I've got to touch the hands and thrust my hand. But when Jesus shows up, what does he tell Thomas? Thomas, go ahead. Do what you said you wanted to do. How did you know that? Because he's God. That's how he knows. And that's what compels Thomas to say, my Lord and my God, my God. You know, as I was reading something, I, I saw a quote from a man that said, uh, it should be said in Thomas's favor, that if Thomas had the heaviest doubt, he also had the fullest confession. My Lord and my God. You're not just simply the Son of God. You are my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Well, that was true of all of them. But he's not talking to all of them, okay? Again, he's, he's not saying, Thomas, you're the most doubting of all. He's just talking to Thomas because that's who he's addressing. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly did Jesus many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ Uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. So this is a quote from Jesus, and then we move into John's conclusion of the chapter. Now, when you read those words, you think, the book's got to be over. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a really good conclusion to John's gospel. But there's another chapter, and so we're going to go into that later. But let's examine what he says to Thomas here. Who are those who he's talking about? Us. I've never seen... Jesus' hands have you I've never seen his feet and Jesus said Thomas you believe me because what what you've seen but blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe and I'll tell you it'd be real easy to believe in Jesus if you saw the wounds but I'm gonna tell you something friends I'll tell you why I believe because the tomb was empty the tomb was empty no one's been able to produce the body of Jesus. These men that testified, they put their life at risk. These scared men who were afraid to die put their lives on the line and died for the resurrected Savior. And if that's a lie, then they're fools. It's one thing for somebody to die for something they believe to be true. It's a whole other thing for someone to die for something they know isn't true. And they gave their life, believing Jesus was alive from the dead. And John said, you know why? Because they saw the signs. They saw them. And I don't believe that, in, that he's specifically referring to all of the signs that Jesus did in his life. I think he's talking about all the signs that Jesus did after he was resurrected to prove to them that he is the resurrected Son of God. And he said, those things were not written, but these were, and that's sufficient. That's enough. It's enough for you to believe that he is the Messiah, the Anointed One. He's the Son of God. And that believing... You may have life in his name. How did John's gospel start? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. How does John's gospel begin to wind down? The exact same way. He is eternal. He is God. In him is life. And you can have life if you believe. And I'll tell you, friends, we don't serve a dead Savior. I know I've said that several times, but I, I, I want to keep reminding you: we do not serve a dead Savior. Jesus Christ is alive. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has been crowned. He is Christ. He is Lord. He is King. I tell you right now, He's working. He's working on your behalf. That's the kind of Savior you have—not just a man, but man and God, a perfect mediator and an intercessor. And because we know Jesus is arisen from the dead, we have confidence that our sins are forgiven. Our faith is legitimate, and we know why we're living the life the way we're living. Our Lord and our God. Tonight, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. If you do not have eternal life, life is in Jesus, and you will not have life without him. If you are here tonight, and you are a Christian, you've been having struggles in your life, we just want to help you. This is the invitation of Jesus. It is through his healing and his power that we are enriched and we're blessed. And if you need his power tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and we sing.